This podcast episode is the recording of an interview between Helen Shaw and Sharon Hall on the child sexual assault pilot. Helen Shaw is a senior solicitor at Legal Aid New South Wales. Helen was admitted as a solicitor in 1998 and since her admission has worked in the area of criminal law in both private practice and at Legal Aid. Since 2006, Helen has worked exclusively on indictable matters. Helen has been conducting in-house training at Legal Aid on the child sexual assault pilot since its inception in 2016 and has instructed counsel in a number of these matters in the District Court. Sharon Hall is a barrister at Samuel Griffiths Chambers. Sharon was admitted as a solicitor in 1999 and called to the bar in 2007. As a solicitor, Sharon worked at the Western Aboriginal Legal Service as well as at Legal Aid New South Wales. Sharon appears primarily in criminal trials in the District Court of New South Wales as a defence barrister and has also been instructed in the capacity of a non-salaried Crown prosecutor. Sharon has appeared in a number of pre-recordings since the introduction of the pilot scheme and the resulting trials. Sharon is the New South Wales Bar Association representative on the Pilot Scheme Implementation Management Group. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Thank you, Sharon, for talking to us today about the Child Sexual Assault Pilot. So what is the Child Sexual Assault Pilot? The Child Sexual Assault Pilot is a scheme that was introduced in 2016 and it effectively introduces two new concepts to the prosecution of child sexual assault matters in New South Wales. The first of those is the pre-recording of child witnesses' evidence, and that happens in the absence of the jury. And the second aspect of the pilot is the introduction of witness intermediaries. And what legislation governs the procedures for the child sexual assault pilot? The legislation is uh, contained in the Criminal Procedure Act and it's in one of the schedules, Schedule 2, Part 29 of the Criminal Procedure Act. In addition to that, there are some regulations. The regulations don't play a huge role because they mostly refer to matters relating to witness intermediaries, but there is also a District Court Practice Note, which is District Court Criminal Practice Note 11. And what are some of the criteria for matters to be placed in the child sexual assault pilot? Section 83 of the part uh, deals with its application and at the moment what it states are that matters that are held at the Newcastle and Downing Centre District Courts relating to a prescribed sexual offence, which is defined in Section 3 of the Act, they are matters that fall within the scheme and the complainant must be 16 or under at the time that the matter is committed to the district court. Alternatively, there can be an application by a party or the court of its own motion can uh, bring the matter within the pilot scheme. In your experience, what is generally happening at the first call over at the district court? At the first call-over, the court generally expects the Crown or the trial advocate who are going to be appearing for the Crown and Defence Counsel to be present. 
the reason for that is that they're going to be making a number of orders about the procedure of the matter and it's better if counsel are there because it's going to concern their availability. The judge is going to make an order for the filing and service of the Section 142 notice. So that's where the Crown files the indictment and also files a Crown case statement. The court will also make an order for the defence response, the Section 143 notice. The court will list the matter for pre-recording, which is where all of the child witnesses, including the complainant, will give evidence, be cross-examined, and that will be recorded for use at the trial. The judge will make an order about the appointment of witness intermediaries and when their reports have to be filed and served by. And I think there'll also be the requirement uh, that the council, their instructing solicitors, provide their contact details so that reports can be provided to the parties a lot earlier than they have been. And the final order that the court will make will be for the trial date. And what are the major differences in the way matters in the child sexual assault pilot are run compared to child sexual assault trials which are not part of the pilot? Well, the two main differences are obviously that in the pilot scheme, there are two separate parts to the trial. So there's the pre-recorded hearing, which is where the complainant and any other child witnesses give evidence, and that is recorded and later played at the trial itself. There can be a gap of between six and nine months between the trial and the pre-recording, so that's obviously a significant change. The second is the appointment of witness intermediaries. Now, in the legislation, there's the word children's champion and also the word witness intermediary. Uh, can you just explain that? The phrase witness intermediary is the one that has been preferred. It's preferred by the court, but it's also actually preferred by the witness intermediaries themselves. The reason for that is a general concern that the use of the term children's champion has the potential to really blur the boundaries of what's happening and to misrepresent the role of the witness intermediary. So even though the legislation uses the phrase children's champion, the one that I would certainly recommend that all practitioners use is the one of witness intermediary because that's what the court uses and again, that's what the witness intermediaries themselves prefer. And what is a witness intermediary? Who is a witness intermediary? A witness intermediary is an independent expert who is there as an officer of the court. They are someone who has specific qualifications, such as speech pathology, who is going to be able to assist the court in terms of communication. Their duties, which are set out in Division 3 of the relevant legislation between Sections 88 and 90, note that the duty of the witness intermediary is to impartially facilitate the communication of and with the witness with a view to obtaining that witness's best evidence. And we've touched on role of the witness intermediary. Um, they are now also being brought in at very early stage in proceedings at the police station, um, prior to the child giving evidence and at court. Yes. Their role 
even though they're being used at that early stage at the police interview, doesn't really change. So their role is always to assist in communication, that is both by the witness and with the witness. So this really means providing advice and suggestions about how things can be better communicated. And that might be by recommending the rephrasing of a question, um, suggesting a different way to approach an area that sometimes can't easily be navigated in the usual question and answer form. So the witness intermediary, whether they're involved at that early stage of the police interview or even later on at court, their role doesn't change. And what are some common misconceptions about what a witness intermediary is or does? A common misconception, I think, is tied in with the use of that phrase, children's champion. And what's really important to note about the witness intermediary is it's not their role to elicit information. It's not their role to explain information. So talking about the police interview, it's not their role to, um, to get the information or the complaint from the child. Uh, the common misconception that the witness intermediary is there to answer for the witness, to interpret their evidence, uh, or indeed to protect them from the direction that the questions are going in. Um, those are many of the misconceptions, and I think that's part of the reason that Defence Council in particular have been resistant to this introduction, but that's not their role, and the important thing is that the witness intermediaries are well aware that that's not their role. They know what they're there to do. And for those practitioners who have not seen a witness intermediary report yet, would you outline the sort of information that goes into a report? Certainly. The reports are actually quite lengthy. You're usually dealing with about 20 pages of information. And the information can be quite dense. Uh, it will set out, importantly, the qualifications of the witness intermediary. It will set out what dealings they've had with the child, so how long they met them for, um, how they met them, who was there, what sort of things they did, what sort of information they'll have been provided with. Um, it'll set out in a narrative form many of the issues they've identified, so um, any problems they've identified, any difficulties the child seems to experience, those matters will all be set out in a very detailed narrative form. The end of the report is the crucial part of the report for Defence Council, and that's a report that will contain a table of recommendations. And it's this table of recommendations that are going to form the ground rules. The table will set out what this recommendation is, it'll set out the rationale for the recommendation, it will set out, uh, best described as the wrong way of doing it, as well as the right way of doing it, uh, and it will really suggest the best way that counsel can ask questions of this particular witness. Um, the other thing that's important about the reports are that the witness intermediary will usually include some contact details for them. That'll usually be an email address and witness intermediaries really encourage counsel to get in touch with them before the hearing, before the pre-recording, 
so that there can be an open dialogue about questions that might be asked. If you're having trouble formulating particular questions about a topic, how best to approach that and any other questions that council might have about um, the witness intermediaries report or their role during the course of the hearing. From a defence perspective, how can we best utilise the witness intermediary? The best way of utilising the witness intermediary is really considering how the information they give you assists in your cross-examination. We tend to think that we know how to cross-examine witnesses and we know the best way of doing it because it's the way we've always done it. But it's surprising and sometimes even a bit confronting about the way in which our ways of doing it aren't always the best. And sometimes a witness intermediary will have a suggestion that seems so simple and really um, makes such a difference. For example, uh, a child who doesn't present with any particular difficulties, but is simply a, a about six or seven years of age, perhaps eight, they have such a visual way of um, understanding information and the use of a basic timeline can make such a difference. Quite often you'll find a witness intermediary will recommend that issues of time are something that children have real difficulty with. And in the particular case I'm thinking of, an eight-year-old girl with a simple timeline that set out not dates, but it set out the school year. Um, so beginning the beginning of term one, setting out the four terms, Christmas at the end, and her birthday. Those were the only details on the timeline. And to be able to see the recognition in her face every time she looked at the timeline, it really meant that we were getting great evidence from her. And in that case, the timing was really important. So it was really important for us to lock her in to a particular time. So the use of that timeline made a difference in a way that I have to confess, I was quite surprised by, but that was something that the witness intermediary recommended and it really made a difference and it's something that in future I will certainly use again and would definitely recommend to others. That's very interesting. Um, how are the pre-recorded cross-examination of child complainant or complainants and or child witnesses conducted in practice? Sure. The first thing that happens is the ground rules hearing. This is a really, really important part of the process. The reason it's important is because you're going to be held to these rules. So don't think it's just a formality and I just need to sit there and get through it. You have to engage in the process. You've got to understand the impact it's going to have on your ability to ask questions. So it's important to look at those recommendations, consider if there are any that you're going to have trouble complying with, because if there are, get in touch with the witness intermediary and try and work out a way around it or try and formulate a middle ground because that's going to be important. If you can't comply with the rules, there's going to be interjections by the witness intermediary. Those interjections will happen by way of the witness intermediary raising their hand and saying, Your Honour. So 
they're going to make a recommendation about how to rephrase the question or you may simply take on board that you've slipped up perhaps by adding a tag on um, and you might just rephrase it yourself. But that's a really, really important part of the pre-recording. Um, you might expect that the playing of the child's uh, JERT interview or the interview with the police would be the next part because that's their evidence in chief. But that is not the case. There's an expectation that that will have been viewed by counsel and or the client, the accused, before the pre-recording. So it's really incumbent on the lawyers to make sure that they've seen the um, interview with the police before the pre-recording because that will not be played at the pre-recording itself. The Crown may have some additional questions to ask. There may be some clarification they need to um, go through in their evidence in chief. But if there is no evidence in chief, it will be more or less straight into cross-examination from the ground rules hearing. So um, it's very, very quick in that sense. There's no time to settle in and get comfortable. You might be on your feet more or less straight away. And then once cross-examination's finished, it's re-examination in the usual course. What happens if fresh material is served on the accused's representatives, such as another JERT interview or a statement which is prejudicial to the accused, which affects the defence case after the pre-recorded cross-examination of the child or children has occurred? Section 87, subsection 1, deals with uh, the recalling of a witness and it provides that a witness can be recalled with leave. Um, but section 87, subsection 3, provides that leave should only be granted where the party became aware of material it could not reasonably have been aware of at the time of the recording or it's otherwise in the interests of justice. So clearly, if you've been served with an extra statement or uh, a, an interview with the child that goes directly to issues that are of some significance, um, the court will usually grant leave in those circumstances. Not every statement will obviously result in a child being able to be recalled in that granting of leave, but matters that really go to the issues that have been raised with the child or alternatively a fresh issue that's arisen. And what do you see as some of the challenges for defendants and defence lawyers of the child sexual assault pilot? I think the significant concern is a shift or a change indeed of the Crown case. I think that's what concerns most people. Uh, I know that there are amendments that are coming in the not too distant future that are going to specify that the Crown can't amend the indictment uh, after the pre-recording's taken place. So I think that'll give the defence a little bit more certainty that any gains they make uh, won't be able to be undermined by the Crown simply removing that count from the indictment. Um, I think the patching up of the case and the serving of fresh material is something that does concern us uh, and that's obviously something we need to be wary of. But again, there is that provision for the recalling of witnesses. Uh, it's just cumbersome in terms of having to have another pre-recording. The other issue that is significant and significant from a legal aid perspective uh, is that it really is double the work and double the preparation. 
it is absolutely essential that counsel and, and lawyers appearing in these matters are ready to run the trial at the time of the pre-recording. It's not good enough to only be across the complainant's evidence. You need to cover everything at the pre-recording that you would ordinarily in a trial. So that means being across complaint evidence. It means being across inconsistent versions. Um, so you have to be across the whole brief at the time of the pre-recording. And again, you need to be across the brief obviously when the trial starts. Yeah. So it is a bit of double preparation, which is, I think, a bit of a challenge for the defence. It does seem to be a lot more work and it does seem to be quite time-consuming. Yeah. And I think also it's really important to remember that that pre-recording is day one of the trial. And so your client, you know, is arraigned, plea of not guilty has been entered, the trial has begun. It's just, you just don't have a jury there. That is absolutely right. And that goes for, I should say, not just the defence, but the Crown as well. And the Crown need to have thought about how they're going to run their case, not after the pre-recording, but before that. Uh, so I think one of the challenges for the defence is that we don't have the Crown opening at the time of the pre-record. And I think that's something we need to really give some consideration to of whether the Crown ought to be obliged to open before the pre-recording takes place. Um, I think at the moment there's a bit of a reliance on the Crown case statement as really binding the Crown in that sense, but I think we might find as time goes on and we're doing more of these that we really need a bit more certainty in, in the shape of a Crown opening. So that's perhaps something that'll be visited at some stage, I expect. That's a really good point. Um, and what sort of things should defence practitioners be aware of or be careful of, be mindful of, when representing clients who are going through the pilot? I think this just follows on from what we were, what we were saying in relation to your last question, Helen, and that is you need to be organised early. You need to know what's in your brief before committal. Uh, you need to have done whatever needs to be done in terms of subpoenas or any other inquiries that you might want to make because after committal, the, pra the practice note specifies that the pre-recording is meant to take place within two months of committal and that's obviously not uh, always adhered to because of the, the uh, backlogs that we're experiencing in the district court but it does put a lot of time pressure on us. So at committal, you really do need to be across everything and know that you're more or less ready to proceed uh, because of that time pressure you're going to be under once you get to the district court. And I think, yeah, these cases compared to other trials in the district court, um, you've got to have your defence response to the notice of prosecution, prosecution case much sooner than, than your other trials. Um, so all those defence to the elements and everything have to be on paper, filed, crown on notice very, very early. Absolutely. And you might find, for example, your attitude to the edits of your client's record of interview are going to be affected by uh, whether there's a tendency notice. And you need to know whether there's a tendency notice before you cross-examine the complainant because you might need to 
cross-examine the complainant about not necessarily the tendency notice, but some of the answers your client gives in his or her record of interview um, that are going to be affected by the tendency notice. So there's a whole lot of things that you need to really consider, um, despite the fact that your client's record of interview is not going to be tendered for another year. So they're very real concerns before the pre-recording. And any further comments or tips that you have for us? The most important thing, I think, is not to be intimidated by the uh, procedure. I think you have to see it as an opportunity to hone your skills as an advocate, if that is your role, if you have the speaking role. The cross-examination of the complainants and other child witnesses has to be very, very disciplined because it's not simply a case of asking a bad question and looking back on the transcript and cringing a little bit. When you ask a bad question, a double negative or you add on a tag saying something like, that didn't happen, did it, um, you're going to be interrupted. And that's a very, not only is it a visual, but it's an oral um, interjection into the proceedings that the jury will hear and see. So it's really, really important that you're disciplined in your approach if you are the one with the speaking role. Um, but being disciplined is going to allow you to get the best results for your client. Uh, so it's really, really important. That aspect of being organised is very, very important when you're the one with carriage of the matters because you are really, really responsible for assisting whoever you're instructing to ensure that they're up to date, that they know what's happening and that they're organised. And I think the last thing to be aware of and be conscious of is if you work outside of Sydney, the Downing Centre or Newcastle, um, you can expect that this scheme is going to be rolled out, at the very least, the introduction of witness intermediaries. So it's something to be conscious of and it's something to be aware of because it's going to have an effect on your practice, even if you're outside of these pilot areas because it will be rolled out um, and we're going to be at the forefront of it. So we have to know how to deal with it, but not just deal with it, deal with it so that we can get great results for our clients and best represent their interests. And that's obviously the most important thing. Thanks so much for your time, Sharon. It was really beneficial to all of us. It will be great to listen to and I'm sure that lots of people will want to listen to this podcast. Thank you.